Hello listeners. Before we launch into today's crime caper, a little bit of news. Sadly, this episode will be the last of Scotland Yard Confidential. It's been a rip-roaring ride, seeing how the Yard's best and brightest have foiled heists, tracked down killers, and ensnared fraudsters. Their detectives are often given the runaround. Sometimes they chase their quarry to the ends of the earth, but rarely does anyone escape justice. On behalf of everyone here at Noiser and Parcast, we thank you for joining us on this wild ride. Now, let's delve once more into the case files of Scotland Yard Confidential. It's Thursday the 24th of April, 1975, London. The Mayfair branch of the Bank of America in Davies Street lies quiet and closed. It's six o'clock in the evening and the bank's usual workers have all clocked off for the night. Apparently, that is, apart from six smartly dressed gentlemen carrying briefcases who now approach the bank's front door. The pedestrians pay little attention to the important looking executive types as they pause on the doorstep. One of the bankers, Jimmy O'Loughlin, steps forward and unlocks the door and ushers his colleagues inside. Now, with the front door safely closed behind them again, the men gather in the foyer, breath held, listening. The bank is quiet. A faint tip-tapping comes from the floor above, where they know the computer department is still at work. O'Loughlin nods to his mates. It's time to get moving. These six men are not employed by the bank, nor are they clients or customers. They're a gang of experienced bank robbers and safe breakers, and they're here to bust into the vault. It's not their first attempt on this particular safe room either, but this time, thanks to Stuart Buckley, their man on the inside, they're confident they're gonna get it right. In fact, Buckley is the only member of the gang not here tonight. On the off chance that the heist goes wrong, they don't want their most valuable assets, a trusted employee of the bank, to be caught up in the crossfire. He may yet be useful for future jobs too. Led by O'Loughlin, they make their way quickly across the wide, tiled floor of the main bank foyer, heading straight for the vault room. They move quietly, careful not to rouse any unwanted attention from the workers on the floor above. They also know they only have about two and a half hours before the mobile security detail comes back round to check on the bank, and they need to be out before that. Leaving two of the gang to keep watch, the rest head into the vault room. For the gang's trusted key man, Leonard Wilde, this is one of the easiest jobs he's ever had to pull. One of the most accomplished safe crackers on the scene, he has the, perhaps slightly overblown, reputation of being able to forge a key from memory. Fortunately, there's no need for that kind of expertise tonight. Thanks to Buckley's cunning, the gang is armed not only with the key to the bank, but also with the codes for the two dials securing the seven inch thick steel safe door. Inside that vault lie hundreds of safe deposit boxes filled with treasures beyond their wildest dreams. Wild smiles at O'Loughlin as they step up to the vault door, each man in front of one of the dials. Usually the bank manager and his assistant are the ones in this position and the only ones to know the codes. Both have to turn the dials at the same time, entering their own code to get the door to open. Tonight, O'Loughlin plays the role of manager 
and Wilde, the assistant. The number sequences Buckley gave them worked perfectly. With a heavy thunk and an expectant creak, the vault door swings open. Just moments after walking through the front door, the gang now find themselves inside the open vault, facing a wall of deposit boxes and potentially the biggest haul of their lifetimes. They set to work with drills and crowbars, prizing open the boxes to reveal a score far greater than any of their wildest dreams. So great, in fact, they realize they won't even be able to take it all with them. If their calculations are correct, this will be one of Britain's biggest ever heists, perhaps even the biggest in world history, and it will ensure that each gang member's name goes down in criminal folklore. But their inside man, Stuart Buckley, will enter the history books for an altogether different reason. And their fates will all depend on what he does next. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The robbery at the Bank of America is certainly bold. Not least because the intelligence division at Scotland Yard has been watching key members of the gang for months now, knowing they were planning something. Once a criminal is in Scotland Yard's sights, there aren't many places for them to hide, and the surveillance operation on this gang of bank robbers has been many hours in the making. All the lads from the yard need to do 
is catch them in the act, and they'll have them banged to rights. C-11 Division, the intelligence arm of Scotland Yard, works closely with a number of snitches and grasses. Low-league members of the criminal fraternity were willing to inform on their so-called mates and colleagues in exchange for a bit of hard cash. The officers run their own lists, build relationships, and know immediately when one of their snouts has given them a juicy tidbit. Back in January, one of the officers in C-11 had been given a tip-off from one of his more reliable informants. Apparently, a couple of well-known thieves called Jimmy O'Loughlin and Leonard Wilde were putting together a plan for a heist. Where, when, and who with were all still unknown, but the tip warranted a follow-up. Until that point, O'Loughlin had been fairly disregarded by police as something of a third-rate villain. But he seems he's about to enter the big leagues. Associating with a well-seasoned safecracker like Leonard Wilde will do that for a man's reputation. And so it is that O'Loughlin, unknowingly, finds himself under very careful observation. Trailing the handsome, smartly-dressed man to bars and cafes, hotels and houses, C-11 officers begin building a decent picture of O'Loughlin's life. His loyal girlfriend, with her nice house in South London, is always there with a kiss and a smile when he arrives. His friends always seem happy to see him, laughing and joking easily in his company. And sure enough, old Leonard Wilde turns up on the scene often too. The two men frequently share a breakfast at a greasy spoon in the city, or meet for a pint and a long chat in a local pub. But it's only when the pair of crooks start meeting up with a third man that the detectives begin to put two and two together. That third man is a 26-year-old former convict turned freelance electrical contractor called Stuart Buckley. He was only released from prison the year before and has kept a low profile ever since. Police had thought he was trying to get his life on the straight and narrow, but now seeing him sat sipping coffee with O'Loughlin and Wilde makes them think again. When detectives look into what Buckley's been doing, they make a surprising discovery. It seems he's managed to secure a gig working as an electrician installing new phone lines in the Bank of America. And now, here he is, cozying up with a notorious bank robber and a legendary safecracker, both of whom are apparently planning a big job. Well, it doesn't take a genius to work out what the target is. All the detectives need to do now is figure out when they're going to do it and catch them red-handed. Covert observation is stepped up a gear. A few inquiries tell them that Buckley has been working in the city branch of the bank for a couple of months, having offered the bank a way of getting some fancy new phones installed in half the time for half the price. Having watched the young electrician for a few days, it looks as though the bank manager trusts him enough to have given him a key. It's the 1970s. And security checks, even for the biggest bank in the world, are minimal. A couple of good references and the right price quoted for a job are more than enough. Hiding in a building across the road from the city branch of the bank, officers watch Buckley coming and going at all times of day. But their excitement is peaked when they see Jimmy O'Loughlin with him a couple of times. After hours, of course. Any remaining doubts are later removed when the crooks turn up with another man police recognize, Mickey Gervais, an alarms expert. The deal is sealed, and police assure the bank is about to be raided. 
Instead of watching the gang, now all efforts are turned to round-the-clock surveillance of the bank. Detectives are pretty sure that any attempt on the bank will happen after hours, so a watch is set every night. Unlike the rest of London, the area known as the city, with its banks and offices, is quite deserted on the weekends. If you're going to rob a bank, police reckon, that would be the best time to do it. The first week and weekend of surveillance passes without incident. The second weekend, too. Holding their nerve, detectives continue their vigil, waiting for the crooks to strike. It's a boring, lengthy watch, but the officers are determined to catch these men in the act. It's only a matter of time. In the early hours of Friday the 25th of April 1975, as dawn's first pale fingers throw long shadows on the city streets, the night shift packs up after another uneventful watch. They're tired and frustrated, having hoped to be the ones to get the break. When on earth will these crooks strike? That same Friday morning, the men and women of C11 Division arrive at Scotland Yard for the morning briefing. There, they are greeted with the worst news imaginable. The Bank of America was robbed last night, and the thieves made off with well over eight million pounds worth of gold, jewels, and cash. A world record-setting haul. A stunned, appalled silence hangs in the air at Scotland Yard. How could that be possible? Detectives had been watching the bank all night, waiting for any movement. Not a soul had come or gone and certainly not a gang of known thieves. As consternation abounds, C11 discovers the news gets even worse. They've been right all along. Well, almost. Yes, the gang of well-known thieves they've been watching were planning a robbery. Yes, the Bank of America was the target. Yes, the thieves would strike when the bank was closed. But sadly for C11, they've been staking out the wrong branch. It's the Mayfair branch that was broken into last night. Its internal layout is identical to the city branch, but it's in a completely different part of London. C11 division has been played and made to look like fools. Well, Scotland Yard's finest do not appreciate having egg on their faces. Battle lines are drawn and the cops are determined to bring these robbers down. Having been wrong about the where, they just have to hope now that they were right about the who. But this is no longer a job for the intelligence division. It's time to call in the flying squad. The job of catching the crooks and recovering the goods falls to Detective Chief Superintendent Jack Slipper. And he's no stranger to hunting down robbers. DCS Slipper earned a few of his stripes for his relentless pursuit of the great train robber Ronnie Biggs. Uncle Jack, as DCS Slipper is affectionately known, is a man of few words, but of impressive action. A born leader, he understands the criminals he pursues. He knows exactly how to deal with them. In the words of his officers, he simply gets things done. He wastes no time in setting his team to work now. Since Jimmy O'Loughlin has been the gang member in C-11's sights for the longest, that's where DCS Slipper and his team turn their attention first. Hopefully, he'll lead DCS Slipper to the rest of the gang. The same day, not even 24 hours after the robbery, 
plainclothes detectives trail O'Loughlin to the luxury department store Harrods in the posh London borough of Knightsbridge, just a mile or so from the raided bank. The fancy store is frequented by the extremely wealthy, not the kind of place a convicted criminal would usually shop. When O'Loughlin leaves the luxury store, he's carrying a pair of newly purchased suitcases. Nothing illegal about that, but DCS Slipper certainly doesn't want this crook skipping the country. Detectives follow him closely. Keeping a safe distance, the undercover officers trail him to his girlfriend's house in South London and settle in to keep watch. Huddled behind a clump of bushes, with a good view of the front door, the detectives are beginning to regret their light spring attire. The evening is drawing in and the chill is seeping into their bones. With their breath clouding in front of their faces, they're beginning to worry that they might be stuck out here all night. But their luck changes when a light comes on in the hallway and they see movement behind the door. A nudge in the ribs from one officer to another. Time to get ready. The door opens, spilling light onto the pebbled driveway and framing O'Loughlin's tall, well-dressed figure. He's carrying one of the suitcases and from how it's weighing his right shoulder down, it looks a lot heavier now than when he brought it a few hours ago. Holding their nerve, not wanting him to bolt back into the safety of his girlfriend's house, officers watch as O'Loughlin kisses her goodbye and walks away from the house, suitcase in hand. His girlfriend leans in the doorway, watching him head off. And so she's the first to see the two officers leap from the bush, shouting at O'Loughlin to stay where he is. With his girlfriend shouting at the cops to leave her man alone and O'Loughlin protesting his innocence, one of the officers detains the suspect while the other grabs the suitcase. When he opens it, the detective's face breaks out in a wide, triumphant grin. Inside is a pile of jewelry, gold and cash. What will amount to a quarter of a million pounds worth, in fact. Jimmy O'Loughlin is arrested on the spot, his girlfriend's protests falling on very deaf ears. Listeners, in honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, Parcast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then, on Unsolved Murders, discover three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Unsolved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 16th. Follow Disappearances and Unsolved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Back at the yard, O'Loughlin remains tight-lipped. He's refusing to name any of his accomplices or give any details of what happened on the night of the 24th of April. It doesn't take long, though, for the team to identify the jewels in O'Loughlin's suitcase 
as being a match for those taken in the Bank of America heist. Good news then, at least C-11 can confirm they're chasing the right gang. And that means that DCS Slipper doesn't really need O'Loughlin to spill the beans on his fellow crooks. Thanks to the concerted efforts of C-11 Division in following this group, Slipper has already got another couple of names to go after next, namely Leonard Wilde and Stuart Buckley. Sure enough, the following day, he sends his officers to seek them out. For a highly skilled key man, Leonard Wilde still has a lot to learn about being circumspect. The morning after they caught O'Loughlin, surveillance officers follow Wilde and his wife on a furniture shopping trip in Hendon, northwest London. Their suspicions are very much confirmed when, while paying for a new kitchen, Wilde ostentatiously pulls out a huge wad of notes. Under the wide-eyed wonderment of the shop staff, Wilde peels off over a thousand pounds and returns at least the same amount to his pocket. The watching police officers need no invitation to move in to arrest him. With news of his arrest reaching DCS Slipper's ears, he next issues an order for a search of Wilde's house in Palmer's Green. Amongst other evidence, that search reveals tools for cutting precision-made keys, safe-cracking and detonation. But crucially, there is no sign of his share of the spoils, apart from that wad of cash in his pocket, which he tries to explain away as honest earnings from his day job. DCS Slipper has more than enough to arrest him, but he's going to need more if he's going to make the robbery conviction stick. Ideally, he needs a confession and a witness to incriminate the gang and place them at the bank on the night of the robbery. Ideally, he needs one of the gang to flip. An inside man, you could say. He's about to strike gold on that front. The other name that C-11 Division gave DCS Slipper was that of the young electrical contractor Stuart Buckley. He's next on the list. This dark-haired lad with a cheeky smile and assured manner only stepped out of prison in May 1974, barely a year ago. Thanks to C-11's intelligence, it is fairly clear that Buckley was the infiltrator who gave the gang access to the Mayfair branch. DCS Slipper is keen to press him for details. With characteristic confidence, just two days after the robbery, Buckley turns up for work at the bank, presumably to maintain his cover. Unfortunately for him, Scotland Yard is watching his every move and he's arrested on the spot. He's brought in for questioning and of course denies everything. He even has an alibi for the night of the robbery. Well, you have to get up early to outsmart DCS Slipper. They have surveillance linking Buckley with O'Loughlin and Wilde, which might be enough on its own. But a confession would seal the deal for all of them. Just as well then that one of DCS Slipper's specialities is interrogations. A master at getting inside the criminal mind and causing it to crack, he knows just when to run the screw and when to play the sympathetic ear. Well, in the end, it doesn't take long for Buckley to start talking. Inside the claustrophobic interview room, squinting at the bright lights, the crook quickly wilts under the harsh glare of the formidable investigator. DCS Slipper plays it perfectly. He simply presents it all as a foregone conclusion, revealing photographs of Buckley's meetings with the other gang members, even giving them a guided tour of the bank. Slipper literally lays out the case file they have on him. Buckley is apparently no longer as confident in his alibi. 
but you have to wonder what finally pushes him over the edge. Could it be there was also a suggestion that O'Loughlin and Wilde may have already implicated Buckley? Was he gently reminded of his recent release from prison and his previous conviction? Whatever it is that Slipper says, Buckley now reluctantly confesses to playing a small part in the heist, but insists he wasn't physically there, nor stole anything himself. But DCS Slipper smells blood, and he knows when to keep a suspect talking. He still needs more to build his case against the others. DCS Slipper suddenly changes tack and relaxes his questions. As if the interview is over and the hard part is done, he now laughs and jokes with a young felon. He admits it was a well-crafted job, the work of genius even. Slipper flatters him, admitting he must have been charming as anything to gain the trust of the manager to get his own keys, even. Slipper pauses, waiting, seeing if Buckley will take the bait. He watches as a wry smile spreads on the young man's face. Buckley is just itching to tell the detective what really happened. DCS Slipper can see it. He pushes a little more and the floodgates open. Buckley is soon regaling him with the story of how he charmed the switchboard operator to distract her while he made an impression of the keys. He tells her how he took two pieces of cuttlefish bone, soft and porous on one side like polystyrene, and pressed both sides of the key into it. DCS Slipper, smiling like a shark, compliments the smart lad. Slipper almost nonchalantly asks if Buckley was at least well rewarded for his part. But here Buckley stops. He refuses to comment. Slipper reminds him that he's already on the hook for the robbery and, as an accessory, he's going to serve time anyway, even if he wasn't in the bank when it happened. If he gives them something to go on, they may be able to persuade the judge to look lightly on him. When they take a break in questioning, Buckley is already wavering. DCS Slipper leaves him simmering for a while, as officers are deployed to his house with a search warrant. When those officers return with Buckley's share of the stolen goods and DCS Slipper counts it up, he senses another chance to drive a wedge between the young electrician and the rest of the gang. O'Loughlin's stash amounted to a quarter of a million pounds worth. Buckley's is a fraction of that, closer to a hundred thousand. Still nothing to be sniffed at, but nothing turns one thief against another like the feeling they've been robbed. Back in the interview room, DCS Slipper mentions that they've found Buckley's share of the loot. The man's face falls. He knows he's firmly in it now. Slipper asks him how he feels having such a small share compared to the others, having done all the hard work himself. Slipper can already sense the change in Buckley. He's got him. And so it is that DCS Slipper gets Stuart Buckley to turn on the gang. He spends the next few hours giving a full blueprint of the job. He even gives them details of a previous failed attempt to rob the bank several months earlier. Apparently, on that occasion, the same gang had used the keys Buckley had made, but they tried and failed to drill through the seven-inch iron door to the vault. The only thing that emptied in the bank that night was the vending machine, exhausting the entire supply of soft drinks trying to keep their drill bits cool before they'd had to concede that they weren't getting anywhere. The job was a bust. 
but Buckley had still been working in the bank. He confesses that the breakthrough for the gang came quite by accident. Apparently, he dropped a screwdriver while running cables in the ceiling. The screwdriver fell and poked a hole in the polystyrene tiles, and he realised that he was directly above the vault door. He couldn't believe his luck, he says. On a night he knew the bank manager and his assistant would be opening the safe door, he hid for hours in that cramped ceiling and waited for his chance. Using a tiny telescope, he clocked the numbers as they dialed them in and made notes. Without these codes, the gang wouldn't have gotten into the vault so easily. Without his keys, they wouldn't have even gotten into the bank. And yet they gave him just a fraction of the cut. It's an insult. Buckley wastes no time confirming the names of the rest of the gang and detailing their involvement in the crime. While there have always been criminals who are happy to grasp on their mates when leaned on by the cops, there's a new precedent being set here. The amount of evidence Buckley has about the rest of the gang means that he's in a position to enter a plea bargain. Never in British legal history has a criminal been offered a reduced sentence in exchange for his evidence. But Buckley is about to change all that. If he pleads guilty to his own crimes and testifies against the others, the judge agrees that he can be awarded supergrass status. The term is a new one and is reserved for a turncoat of the highest order, whose information is of such scale and scope as to earn a prized conviction. In Buckley's case, that would be the conviction of a gang who just pulled off the biggest bank job in British history. With Buckley's evidence, the rest of the gang is quickly rounded up. Not even two weeks after the robbery, five of the six men who walked into the Bank of America on the 24th of April 1975 have been arrested and are awaiting remand. While they search for the last robber, DCS Slipper's team begin preparing their evidence. While Buckley's statement is good, they still need to recover the rest of the valuables and make sure that none of the gang finds a way to wriggle out of their conviction. But as all attention is focused on the impending trial, it turns out the Yard should be more worried about making sure none of the gang wriggle out of custody first. At Marlborough Street Magistrates Court, a suited and booted Jimmy O'Loughlin finds himself waiting for the prison transport van. Despite his dapper appearance, O'Loughlin has had his appeal denied. He's to be sent to Brixton Prison to await trial. But as the prisoners in the waiting area are all being rounded up, O'Loughlin tells his solicitor that he needs to pop to the toilet before they get in the van. His solicitor agrees and passes him a bunch of legal paperwork for O'Loughlin to hand over when he gets to Brixton. The crook thanks him for his time and effort, and the solicitor heads off. Now, whether it's all a remarkable coincidence or not, and some would later argue that it was not, O'Loughlin takes so long in the toilet that by the time he leaves the cubicle, the prisoner transport van is long gone. He's left him behind. O'Loughlin is left standing in the court foyer with no guard. It isn't uncommon for solicitors, clerks and prisoners to all congregate in the waiting area, and O'Loughlin sees his opportunity. He's still clutching the papers his lawyer gave him, all neatly bound in their official ribbon. He straightens his tie, sets his shoulders, and approaches the guard at the doors. Waving his bundle of papers, he mutters, 
solicitor's clerk. Miraculously, the guard just opens the door and O'Loughlin, who up until that moment had been facing remand in Brixton prison and a tough trial ahead, finds himself striding out the front door of the courthouse. Before anyone can stop him, he slips into a taxi and disappears into thin air. When DCS Slipper hears that O'Loughlin has given them the slip, and straight from court too, he's furious. He wastes no time starting the manhunt. But O'Loughlin seems to have fallen off the face of the earth. He's nowhere to be found. His girlfriend claims she's not heard from him since he was arrested. He's not been seen at any of his usual haunts. Not one of the officers watching has seen hide nor hair. Frustrated, DCS Slipper heads back to the yard to regroup where they only had one member of the gang still to locate. Now they have two. Three days of fruitless searching ensues. Neither O'Loughlin nor the other man, Coulson, are anywhere to be found. Increasingly frustrated, but knowing that O'Loughlin never goes long without talking to his girlfriend, DCS Slipper heads back to her South London home for another chat. He has a sense she'll know where he is. It's early evening when, armed with a search warrant, DCS Slipper and a team of officers knock on O'Loughlin's girlfriend's front door. She has no choice but to let them in, but she isn't saying anything when they ask if she's seen him. Even if she did know where he was, she's not going to tell the police. DCS Slipper's interview skills are put to the test again. Making himself at home in a large armchair in her lounge, he instructs his men to search the house from top to bottom. As the sound of his men going room to room echo through the house, he sits watching her shift nervously on the sofa opposite him. He's sure she's lying. As an experienced investigator, DCS Slipper has learned patience. He's well aware that often the answer is right in front of your nose. Well, as he sips his glass of water, he gets a whiff of something deeply suspicious. While O'Loughlin had been in the cells, after his arrests and in between his interviews, one officer after the other had complained about the ripe smell of the robber's feet. And just now, Slipper can't help noticing the odious smell creeping into his nostrils, the unmistakable stench of dirty feet. Literally following his nose, DCS Slipper finds himself at the foot of the stairs. Houses of this type usually have an understairs storage cupboard, but in this house, the space appears to be a simple wood-panelled wall with no cupboard at all. Or is it? Another sniff convinces Slipper. He calls his men down to check the panels. A few knocks reveal the space to be hollow, and in no time at all, the officers are broken through to find an expertly hidden hidey hole under the stairs. And inside it, the foul-footed linchpin of the gang, Jimmy O'Loughlin. The handcuffs are slapped on, and it's off to Brixton for him to await trial. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. 
the Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Feeling pleased with his success, DCS Slipper returns to Scotland Yard. His happiness is now only marred by the one gang member still missing. A man called Peter Coulson has so far evaded capture. But thanks to the sharp ears of C-11 Division, a new tip comes in that Coulson has been calling two separate girlfriends on alternate lunchtimes from public phone boxes around Knightsbridge. Officers are sent to stake out every phone box they can find in the area. Sure enough, just as one team is about to stand down at the end of another day, they drive past a box that's not even on their list. Inside is a man who matches the description. Thin and rakish, a wiry moustache and slightly thinning hair. The officers are sure it's Peter Coulson. Parking up a little further up the street and suspecting the man might resist, the officer in charge approaches cautiously. Taking a deep breath to steady his nerves, the officer pulls open the door to the phone box. As the caller spins round, angry at the interruption, he finds himself staring down the barrel of the officer's Smith & Wesson pistol, raised and ready. Peter Coulson, the copper asks. Coulson slowly raises his hands and reluctantly steps from the phone box. There'll be no trouble from him today. DCS Slipper and his team have done all they can. Now it's down to the courts and the evidence of one of the country's first so-called supergrasses to put these men behind bars. Since Stuart Buckley has been granted supergrass status, his trial happens before the others. In recognition of the assistance he's given to the police in the investigation, and the weight of evidence he can bring against the other defendants, he's given a far lighter sentence. Disappointingly for Buckley, given his existing record, it still won't be as light as he hoped. He gets seven years for his trouble. Although that seems harsh, especially in light of the evidence he's provided, his sentence could easily have been over 20 years. Perhaps, unluckily for Buckley, the role of Supergrass is still in its infancy. In future, informants of his ilk will often be rewarded with commuted sentences, light prison duties, comfortable accommodation, or even financial reward. Not so for the pioneering snitch Stuart Buckley. The authorities do acknowledge that regular prison will be too dangerous for him as a known informant, but without anywhere safer to post him, poor Buckley is sent to the vulnerable prisoner's wing, where he will serve his sentence alongside rapists, child murderers, and worse. The thought of serving time there sickens Buckley, and he almost refuses to go through with giving evidence against the others. But the threats of a longer sentence persuades him to see it through. In the build-up to the trial of the rest of the gang, Buckley is placed under armed guard, which is probably for the best, as one of the other defendants is shot in the street on his way to the trial and ends up losing a leg, though fortunately not his life. He must have had damaging evidence against one of the other gang members on trial for them to turn on him like that. This attack means that both Buckley and the members of the jury finally sworn in are all kept closely protected throughout the trial. On the 11th of June, 1976, the trial of the six main gang members begins. It has been scheduled to last six to 10 weeks. 
In the end, it would take double that time. Buckley's evidence certainly helps to firm up the case for the prosecution. By the time the sentences are handed down, the gang collectively receives over 100 years of penal servitude. But one thing remains a mystery. Throughout their whole time in custody, all of the gang have refused to give up the location of their shares of the Bank of America Hall. The value stolen is thought to be somewhere between eight and 12 million pounds, though no one, not even the bank, can provide an exact figure, given the secretive nature of many of the safe deposit boxes held there. Of that hefty sum, only a meager 500,000 pounds has been recovered, and all of that had come from the men who had been under surveillance by Scotland Yard's C-11 division in the first place. Jimmy O'Loughlin, Leonard Wilde, and Stuart Buckley. On the 6th of November, 1976, as Judge Alan King Hamilton hands down the sentences to the six defendants, he asks the men once more to reveal where the stolen goods are hidden. When they still refuse, he belligerently tells them, whatever has happened to it, it will not be used for your benefit. Although, of course, it most likely would. Since the money and valuables were never recovered, no one will ever know if the men recovered it after their release or not. Even if the cash had diminished in value after 20 odd years inside, the other valuables might arguably be worth double. Stuart Buckley, for all his lauded supergrass status, served out his sentence in the awkward and sickening to him confines of the vulnerable prisoner's wing. When he left custody, he was removed from London, never to return and began a new life under a different name. And for the team at Scotland Yard, the arrest and capture of these celebrated robbers earned many commendations and praise from the judge and the public. But for DCS Slipper, it was just another day at the yard. So, that's the final case closed for Scotland Yard Confidential. Thank you again for lending us your ears we hope you enjoyed listening to the show as much as we enjoyed making it for you. If you're looking for more true crime podcast action and you like the Noiser style of dramatized history and immersive sound design, then check out our new Noiser original series, Detectives Don't Sleep, where we step inside the mind of the master sleuths who stop at nothing in pursuit of their suspects. Just search for Noiser, N-O-I-S-E-R on Spotify or follow us on Twitter. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sean Coleman. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Calling.